Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Every once in a while, events closely line up and change the culture forever. 1984 was one of those years. Prince's Purple Rain? Ghostbusters? Apple's Macintosh? Today on the podcast, you'll hear how 40 years later, the influence of 1984 is still with us. I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Hey, maybe you're like me, and maybe the first thing that you did this morning is check your phone. And then maybe when you went into the shower, you asked your smart speaker, hey, smart speaker, can you, I don't know, play me some jazz music? Uh, Technology, pop culture, and capitalism have been these ever-present forces in our lives. And it is worth asking, how exactly did that happen? And when did that happen? 1984 was one of those pivotal turning point years in history that really shaped how we live today. But can you believe that was 40 years ago? So on this episode of Commotion, we are doing something kind of special. We are looking back at some of the most important breakthroughs of 1984, a time that many of us think think of as the first year of the future. With me here today, music journalist Michelangelo Matos, who wrote a whole book on the subject called Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Michelangelo, good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. And Siva Vadianathan, a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. Siva, welcome back to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Listen, I'm excited. We're going to hop in a time machine of sorts. We're going to kick things off with a television commercial, one of the most famous of its time. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. That commercial debuted exactly 40 years ago tonight during the Super Bowl. It's the Apple ad known as the the 1984 ad. It's inspired, of course, by the Orwell book, which is a grim dystopian society that gets liberated from Big Brother thanks to a heroic hammer-tossing Olympian. That's what happens in this ad. Siva, can we talk a little bit about why that ad was so impactful and what made the arrival of the Macintosh so revolutionary? Yeah, so, you know, when the ad... Uh, played during the Super Bowl, I I can't say it was immediately impactful. It was striking, right? It's it's a visually striking ad and it plays into, remember this is January 1984. Everyone has George Orwell on their mind at that moment. And it plays into this image of um, the notion of striking down a totalitarian order. What was the totalitarian order to Macintosh? Well, that seemed to be IBM, right? IBM with the white shirts and the narrow ties and the sort <laughs> yes. of, you know, button down idea. IBM was this control system, centralized control system, a network that was controlled centrally, um, a, a proprietary platform 
that limited creativity, et cetera. And the image that uh, that uh, Apple was putting forth was one of liberation, of dem- democratization and mm. of dignity. You know, a huge promise to make, right? Right. <laughs> you know, especially since if you take this as the beginning of the, as I do, sort of 1984 and that moment in many ways set out the ideology of the 21st century, then you have to ask yourself, like, how much democratization <laughs> were they really after? And how much have we realized at this time? Because after all, what is the IBM of the 21st century but, but, but Apple. Apple, exactly right. So yeah. we've kind of ended so up exactly the same place that we started. There might have been a revolution, but it was, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, new boss, same as the old boss <laughs> at, at that point, right? We should also, I think it's worth asking about um, another revolution in home computing in 1984 because it wasn't just Apple, yeah. also Dell launched that year. And why is that That's important? Right. Why That's is it important right. to note that Dell launches? Okay. Year? So let me tell you, 1984, I am a senior in high school uh, outside of Buffalo, New York, right? So I am 18. I'm looking at the future. I'm, you know, the future seems to be mine. I'm like, I'm an American. I'm like, this is going to be Everything is possible. awesome. Yeah. And I decided to move to Austin, Texas for my university years, where, unbeknownst to me, a young man named Michael Dell was in a dormitory at the University of Texas, where I would enroll a year later. And was building personal computers in his dorm room and selling them mail order at a very low price. Hmm. Uh, And he had sort of cracked the code on what he saw as a democratization of the personal computer, a personal computer with a very different route and a very different process and a very different value added than what Apple was doing in Cupertino, California with its sealed box. Right. Right. Remember, the the idea of the Macintosh was not revolutionary in any technological way. It's that it was a sealed box so that you didn't have to worry what was underneath the hood. You didn't have to worry about using, um, you know, MS-DOS to create a program and run a program, compile a program, debug a program. You just had to plug a disk in, use the graphical user interface. Right to manage things, right? Dell had a very different idea. Dell had an idea of leveraging what would become the Microsoft ecosystem, which ultimately had many of the same features as the Macintosh, but doing so at a very low price. Now, it's the influence of Dell was in two areas, one in in professional computing. Every small business could right. afford an IBM slash Microsoft-based personal computer within years. And That set the standard for the globalization of the personal computer because most people in most of the world could not afford or could not get a heavily controlled lockdown licensed Macintosh. So these two visions of the personal computer come out in 1984 and really shape the next two decades. Now we're in a very different situation. But, you know, in a lot of ways, the ideology, again, this ideology that like technology is democratizing, which I think we're getting over at this point. Yes. The idea that that technology is something that can unleash 
political and lifestyle freedom. Again, something we should have learned about in the last 10 years, uh, learned otherwise in the last 10 years. But all of that was sort of marked out in 1984. So this is, this is I'm, I'm glad you set that as a frame for us, because what we're really talking about is a promise of a world that was promised in 1984, and whether that kind of came true or not. And also, because we are kind of dealing with the consequences specifically of that vision in the year right. 2024. So with that in mind, as computers were infiltrating homes all over North America, the radio airwaves were dominated by this song. That is Prince. That is When Does Cry. It's a top-charting single of 1984, according to Billboard. Michelangelo, what does this song tell us about the year 1984? It tells us that drum machines ruled <laughs> and that technology was basically now at the precise center of pop music. Uh, a little bit more broadly, Prince had been a cult star for years and mm. buff before the year 1984 and he had you know played clubs halls then arenas when 1999 starts to spin off singles and he had always been a very synth forward uh producer and performer and he was one of many artists who spent the early 80s sort of on the sidelines uh you know outside of the mainstream of pop because in 1979, the music business had nearly collapsed. Mm. Uh, it had gone through a very bad downturn for the first time since the end of World War II. It had lost nearly 11% of its gross income for the year 79, and the early 80s were sort of a dead period. Mm. Um, and a lot of the interesting music of the early 80s was not hearable on pop radio. Pop radio at that point was mostly Air Supply and REO Speedwagon. <laughs> so you basically have a lot of exciting people coming out of punk, coming out of R&B. Hip-hop is starting to happen. But none of that is really getting on the radio so much. But by 84, in America, at least that has changed. The center is now full of people who had come up on the margins. And Prince was foremost among them. He was you know, making gigantic hits. He had a big movie with Purple Rain. It was one of the top grossing films of the year. Yeah. And you also have no bass on that song, which is pretty experimental for the time. Uh, it, it has more in common with the experimental end of music that was happening in the early 80s and had jumped onto the radio by 84. Yeah, you, so you mentioned that there was some experimentation happening, the idea of like drum machines and here's Prince going to the, be, become the top charting song in 1984. What other new technologies would you say were changing the sound of pop music in 1984? Well, the easy answer is the microchip. In early 83 at the uh, Billboard reported on the CES in Las Vegas, which is this big annual tech confab. And the big story of 83, of the beginning of 83, was the microchip. Mm -hmm. uh, and this actually ties in with the rise of the Macintosh, because the Macintosh was one of the computers that people would use to use to sequence songs to to make different kinds of machines drum machines and synthesizers talk to each other mm -hmm. in 1982 there was the unveiling of what was called midi musical instrument digital interface and all of the 
all of the electronic music manufacturers of equipment collaborated on this. They mm. all put in with this, which is very unusual because they were all in competition. But MIDI allowed people to take very different pieces of equipment and have them harmoniously talk to each other and sync up rhythmically, which would have taken hours or days to do before then. So by 84, you have a lot of pop that sounds like computers made it because in many cases it did. And that would only increase with time. So I'm, I'm yeah, glad that I we're... Oh, go ahead, Siva. Yeah, if I could add to that, another layer to what Prince's breakout meant in that moment. Again, from the point of view of a 17 or 18-year-old growing up in the United States in the suburbs, the explicit androgyny and sexuality and, and the sort of liberatory power of that moment. He didn't invent it in pop music. You know, he's building on Bowie. He's building on so many other people. Sure. Uh, you know, he's building on Niles Rogers. I mean, like so many ways. He's, little Richard. He's, little Richard. Oh, my God. Of course. Right. He's building on all of this. <laughs> but he's distilling it in a moment with that new technological sound. Right. That album sounded different than his previous albums, too. Right. right? So he's he's channeling a moment and unleashing forces that we are still riding on today in a very strong and 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 clearly articulated way, right? There was no like, unlike Little Richard, who had to code switch throughout his life, yeah, out of like fear in many ways. Not, I mean, not his own fear, but out of society's unwillingness to hear everything and see everything. Mm. You know, Prince is just out there. Prince is just Prince, and that presents a tremendous. Uh, almost um, irresistible energy and an irresistible tide to the, I think, growing fascination with androgyny and liberatory sexuality. Again, nothing new, right? right? You could actually look to the 1890s for some of that. But at that moment, it was so important, especially since this is Reagan's America, right? This is Reagan's America that's trying to crack down on pornography, that's trying to crack down on language, that's trying to, um, uh, at the same time, in the spirit of that Macintosh commercial, destroy the totalitarian totalitarian force in Moscow, right? Uh, So all of this is going on. We're growing up in Reagan's America, wondering how stifling it's going to be hearing all of the broken promises of 20 years earlier. Sure. And all of a sudden Prince comes and I cannot begin to explain how energetic it was to uh, energizing. It was to hear Prince on FM radio, to see Prince on MTV at that moment and realize that here's someone my age, a little bit older than me, but like basically around my age, um, being full on himself hmm. at this moment in Reagan's America. I mean, I am so glad that you brought up Reagan's America because this is where we were going to go next. I was going to play you a bit of the 1984 ad that Reagan ran on, you know, the, it's morning in America. We don't have to do that anymore because you just set that stage very nicely. But what, what you've also done is pull together a bunch of forces that are colliding, right? Like the idea of politics, culture, pop culture, they're all colliding into this one place. How did the the rise of Reaganism impact what we're seeing in the spheres of technology and pop culture yeah. at the time? I mean, it's it, you could go by the calendar or the political calendar and say that the Reagan era started in 1980. I think the Reagan era really um, uh, unleashed itself in full confident force 
1984 because he had a landslide victory in November of 1984. Whereas in 1980, he won. It was not disputed. It wasn't particularly close, but it was still, you know, a a traditional election. You couldn't see 1980 and the Reagan election as being revolutionary or a landslide. And by the way, Reagan's power slipped back two years later when he lost control of the Senate. Uh, So, um, it was really 1984 when it seemed like Reaganism was an unstoppable force, both in the United States and then quickly around the world. It looked like so Michelangelo was about see, to add a comment there because yeah, Michelangelo I mean, had anything you, to add about that? Um, simply that the economy had had boomeranged. Hmm. The economy had been in the toilet in 1980, 81, 82, and then – Right. In 83, by the by the beginning of 83, things have changed. And by the time of the election in 84, America, the American economy is sailing. There's a cover of Business Week magazine where it's a where it's basically an illustration, a photo illustration of Reagan on a horse loosing dollar bills into the air. <laughs> and that's pretty much how things I, felt in felt around that right. time. I would say that that was the message of the moment. The American economy was still failing for the vast majority of Americans and continues to to this day. The notion but it was a story of, of- the, well, but the the reduction the the, uh, the um, uh, evacuation of the middle class, the sense that middle class work and middle class life would be increasingly harder rather than easier starts in 1984. The trend lines change. The previous 40 years, middle class life in America meant every year and every generation, life got easier and better. 1984, that starts to change for the majority of Americans, Hmm. and it hasn't been corrected since. Like We are such a more class stratified society now than we were in 1984, and 1984 is really the hinge point of that. So yes, in the aggregate, the economy gets better, but that's because – because of Reagan's policies, the rich get increasingly richer, right. add to the mean and to the aggregate, while there is no rising tide in America and there hasn't been since. And you could even look at the policies and messages of a Bill Clinton and a Barack Obama, and they don't differ yeah. substantially from Reagan. They do what the policies do ultimately, and they try to correct some of that. But, you know, what they embrace this sense of spirit optimism can do nothing in our way sure um let's not be critical let's just move forward and that message that that cultural message of reaganism i think was even more long lasting and you see you know francois mitterrand pick up the same uh, you know language and spirit in france to stay in office but and you see so see, let me just... tony Bro- tony blair in the uk soon after do I'm, the same thing. I'm just going to pause you there because we are also an entertainment show. I mean, this is the part that I want to come back to is that like we right. are we are drafting this thesis together. The thesis that what started in 1984 has these implications for what we're talking about today. Hey, I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. 
By the way, if folks are just joining us, my name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. This show is called Commotion. With me are culture finger, thinkers Michael Angel Matos and Siva Vadeyanathan. And we're looking back on the year 1984 and some of the most important cultural breakthroughs and how they're shaping, you know, how we live today. Uh, Michael Angel, something else that really started to take hold in 1984 is this notion of the blockbuster album, right? We talked a bunch about Prince, but also there was Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, Madonna's Like a Virgin. And even though it came out the previous year, Michael Jackson's Thriller was still selling these millions and millions of records. Obviously, pop stars and hit records existed before 1984, but never before had we seen so many stars putting out so many huge numbers putting up these massive numbers, you know, all the time. And that's the thing that we see today, right? We see Taylor Swift, we see Ed Sheeran, we see Drake. What was happening right. in the industry, would you say, in 1984 that allowed pop stars to get as massive as they did? To grossly simplify things, it's two things. It's MTV and Michael Jackson. Okay. Um, MTV, right. comes al- MTV comes along and it's the first thing America has ever had that is like a national radio station. Hmm. Because, you know, radio had always been very local. And even in the 70s, when radio formatting became nationalized, thanks to the rise of consultancy firms, that would, you know, consult a station on here's what you play to keep to this format. MTV comes along and they're just playing what they've got, what they what they have available to them. And that is mostly British, perf- uh, sometimes performance clips, sometimes something artier. And mm. the bands that are not making it onto rock radio in America are the bands that come out of punk and post-punk. Those are the bands that have their clips being played on MTV, not the early punk bands, but later bands, the new pop bands, as they were called, the Culture Club, ABC, like that, Human League. And they became stars and American radio had to react to this. So they start playing this stuff. One of the key things in my book is about how in 83, 84, AOR, album-oriented rock, which would later become classic rock. The re- Part of the reason it becomes classic rock is because in the mid-80s, AOR is panicking. They're losing their listenership. Everybody is not, nobody's, nobody wants, they think nobody wants to hear old Led Zeppelin songs anymore. They don't want to hear the same old songs that they've been playing forever. So suddenly the AOR stations have got to start playing Culture Club and Michael Jackson, and they do. <laughs> I will never forget being, I guess, eight years old and being in the car with my mother and stepfather and my stepfather listened to the local AOR station religiously. And all of a sudden the synth line comes out and it's little red Corvette. And I swear (laughs) everybody in the car was in shock because you did not hear Prince on that station. Right. And that happened all over the country. So the other thing with specifically with regard to albums is thriller comes along and thriller is what the first of what I call the tentpole album. A tentpole album is where the album spins off hit after hit after hit and has a shelf life of three years or so. Right. And as MTV comes along in the later 80s, I end the book with something that happens in 1985, Live Aid, the big charity mm. concert on in Philadelphia and London. It goes on for an entire day, raises millions of dollars for famine relief in Ethiopia. But it also is the biggest global telecast up to that point and it opens the doors for artists to go touring in uh, parts of the world that had never had rock and roll tours before Hmm. so suddenly the combination of thriller and mtv thriller with its 
seven hit singles out of nine songs and MTV, which can just, you know, put put your hit into everybody's home all at once and let radio play catch up with it. Between those two things and then Live Aid, all of a sudden it becomes the norm for a big band to spin record, to spin hit singles off of an album for two, three years with accompanying videos and tour the Far East. So those are so those are the things that lead to the tentpole album. Another thing, too, is in 84, you have a couple of albums in particular, Shaka Khan's album from that year and Tina Turner's Private Dancer, yes. where they farm the production out to a whole bunch of people instead of having one person produce the whole album. And that also becomes a big part of pop going forward. Uh, Siva, I literally have a minute left here. When you look back in 1984 oh, now, what aspects of the yeah. year resonate most loudly for you right now? Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, the Reagan election. Of course, the rise of these two uh to be computer you know computer models right the the microsoft uh uh revolution with uh with michael dell as part of it and the app revolution i would say then reflecting on all that that michelangelo has uh brought to us in terms of the cultural revolutions of the moment in the music industry think about the fact that january 1984 with that commercial in the super bowl apple lays down a track that will ultimately contribute to the destruction and undermining of that entire industry pattern that, <laughs> that Michelangelo just laid out for us. Yes. So, yeah, the music industry had a really good run for nearly 20 years after that moment and then ate itself because of a lot that was coming out of Northern California, Seattle, et cetera, with this sense that um, there would be different distribution methods. There would be different – uh, um, marketing methods yes. and, and people would enjoy and experience music in very different ways. Thanks to, or maybe with blame to the right. digital revolution launched yeah. in 1984. I think that's a perfect full circle. Thank you so much, Siva, Michelangelo. This has been so enjoyable for me. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Great. Thank you. Michelangelo Matos is the author of Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. He joined us from Minneapolis. And Siva Vadia Nathan is a media studies professor at the University of Virginia. He was in Miami. And that is it for the podcast today. Listen, remember, you can listen to any episode of Commotion anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on Instagram. We are at CommotionCBC. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. Hey, I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here, love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.